This podcast episode is in collaboration with the leading Irish corporate law firm ANL Goodbody, providing legal advice to multinational corporations and the international business community. ANL Goodbody offer four graduate programs giving you the opportunity to experience life in a corporate law firm. Applications are currently open for their summer internship program for second, third and fourth year undergraduates. Deadline for applications is the 10th of February 2021. Applications are welcome from all degree discipline. For more information on your future career at ANL Goodbody, please visit www.algoodbody.com. Welcome back to The Legal Lens. We have a very special episode planned for you all today. Many may not be aware of this, but Ireland is a significant player in Europe and possibly globally in today's topic, which is aviation, leasing and finance. We're delighted to be joined by Marie O'Brien, partner at AML Goodbody and Keen Dooley, founding partner of Airborne Capital. Good morning, guys. Before we dive into the topics, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourselves? What do you do and kind of, I suppose, your own career development leading to this? Morning, Matthew. How are you doing? Hi, Keen. So my name is Marie O'Brien. I'm a partner at A&L Goodbody. I head up our aviation finance and transport group and have been practicing in this area for over 15 years. It involves advising various players in this industry, uh, leasing companies, investors, banks, financial institutions around how to structure and complete aircraft finance and leasing transactions. And we're very lucky, as as you mentioned at the outset, that Ireland is a key jurisdiction and a hub for this worldwide. So good morning, uh, Matthew and Marie. Hi, my name is Kian Dooley. And uh, Matthew, as you said in the intro, I'm one of the founding partners at uh, Airborne Capital. There are six partners in total. I've been knocking around the industry for quite a number of years, probably at this stage, 25 plus years, working across aircraft leasing companies initially with Guinness Peat Aviation in Shannon, which was really one of the launch companies through its founder, Tony Ryan, for the whole business that we're talking about today and uh, subsequent aircraft leasing companies such as GE Capital Aviation Services, uh, GCAS, and laterally at uh, Genesis Lease, which was a publicly listed aircraft lessor on the New York Stock Exchange, where I was Chief Commercial Officer from when we IPO'd it in 2006 until we sold it in an all-stock transaction in 2010. And then along the way, I'd spent some time with Boeing, working for that aircraft manufacturer in Europe initially, and then in Seattle, where I was responsible for a lot of the work Boeing was doing in terms of capital markets and financing for new aircraft, such as the Boeing 787. And then um, in recent years, I've been working with banks and financiers, and that was the major driver, if you will, for founding Airborne, because Airborne is one of the number of specialist companies that arranges and provides finance to airlines and other consumers of capital in order for them to acquire aircraft So what I do basically is work, if you will, between airlines and those that provide finance for them to acquire aircraft. And um, it's, it's a growing business. Wow, that's that's like it's quite substantial careers there from both of you. So I guess just for the audience, what is it? What's really kind of the detail involved, I suppose, because you've two very different perspectives here. I suppose, Keen, you're kind of on, like, I suppose, the asset management and the investor side of it, and we very much then on the legal side of it. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of, is it fair to say, is there any two sides of the same coin? Yeah. So maybe if I can take an initial stab at it, and then Marie might correct me for all the things I'll probably get wrong. But um, <laughs> if, you, if you look at airlines, they typically acquire aircraft on an owned 
or lease basis, you know, for their core business of flying people from A to B. But there are many different ways in which they can do this. We can help them with all of the avenues they might wish to pursue. But interestingly, investors are also our clients because they sometimes wish to acquire aircraft and they want to do it for financial gain, for management of tax exposures or other reasons. And they are a very important part of the infrastructure of the industry. In terms of what I do, as I mentioned a little earlier, we have a business that's established globally. So we have offices in Shannon, in Dublin, London, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and New York. But all that being said, we are an Irish company and our principal office is in Shannon, where our finance, operational, technical, and some of our analytical work is undertaken. In Airborne, I manage many of the day-to-day relationships with both both our airline customers and a number of our investors globally. I manage the Irish business, which includes our financial reporting, technical asset management, and operational functions, such as invoicing and cash collection, all those kind of very important things. And I also sit on the board of the company. You know, taking it back up a level for a moment to your intro, Matthew, you know, Ireland really has become a leading global centre for all of these types of activities and can provide interesting career opportunities for many specialties, I suppose. You know, the, the, the split between maybe Marie's focus and mine today might be, mine might be a little bit more commercial and, and Marie's probably on the very important professional services, you know, without which the commercial stuff just can't happen. So I tend to focus on marketing and sales. And I guess, you know, we have a full function capable of supporting that in our business today. Well, I've, I've nothing to correct. Keane's left me nothing to correct <laughs> there. But I will talk about yeah our, our, our perspective on it because, I, Matthew, I do think it's a good question because for people who are not familiar uh, with the industry, they think that our clients are the airlines which we do have some clients as airlines, but it's not our, our it's not really our, our business model focus. Ireland's reputation and Ireland's position is built on the aircraft leasing model. So we'll probably go into this a little bit more in depth throughout the podcast and our discussion. But initially, a lot of aircraft were owned by airlines, but they started to be leased. And the leasing model is something that works really well for Ireland because obviously it doesn't have a massive population. So there's not a huge amount of of airlines operating here, but there is a a, a large number and a a huge number of the the key leasing companies are headquartered here. So they would be our clients just for the purposes of of any students out there who who may be interested in, in, in what an aviation lawyer does is the client will come to you with a potential structure. They, If it's the bank, they want to finance aircraft and they want advice around the security and the structure of that in order to keep the financial package secure and understand the risks around that. And that would be our role. If it's the leasing company, they're going to be made the borrower under those facilities and they want to structure it in the best and most secure way legally in order to produce a really efficient structure. Then companies like Airborne, like Keen's company and others are vital to the industry, investors, private equity houses. So our our clients are spread all around the world and we would have a really widespread in terms of jurisdictions of, of clients that are all drawn in towards Ireland and look to structure their deals through Ireland. So we would be drafting documents for them, helping them with the structuring, which is a part that I really enjoy, working with other professional advisors and really making it very easy to do business through Ireland because of the expertise that has grown up here. Uh, from the very start. Keen may touch on it later because of his background, but essentially, you know, that industry was born to a certain extent in Ireland. So the expertise here is is really well respected. And it does mean that when entities, lessors, investors are looking uh, to do a structure, they can get the proper advice that they need. So there's a lot of different elements to it. We can we can talk a little bit later, but there's 
as well as drafting kind of financial and security documents and maybe shareholders agreements, we would also advise around the Cape Town Convention and GATS and a lo- number of other new developments in the industry. A&L here would have the largest aircraft practice. So we would have five partners who uh, thankfully are still very busy advising clients in this area. And there's about 30 people in our group. So just to give you a sense of the activity, and there's another a number of other practices in Ireland who are very busy in this area. It sounds like quite a specialised area. Like, correct me, like, do you work, is this like a very specialised area in a sense that would you handle all that yourself or do you work with kind of other departments within ANL Goodbody? Because from the sound of everything we're discussing, it sounds like it does involve quite a lot of mergers and acquisitions. There's possibly some dispute resolution. You probably need to know a lot about taxation, certain like commercial law. So it sounds like quite a lot of different areas that you kind of need to amalgamate together and specialise to, to really become like an effective player in this area. Is that correct to say? Absolutely. There's two points around the question around specialisation, and it's actually something that I would speak about a little bit. One is you're absolutely right. You need to have the support across different departments. So we would rely heavily on our employment law colleagues, our corporate colleagues for the kind of M&A and joint venture activity, which is a large part of the industry and actually would be predicted to be a very much part of the activity for the future. We would also uh, deal with our regulatory colleagues because AML, GDPR, all those aspects are very much part of, of this industry. One of the points to remember is these companies have set up in Ireland. They are now very large Irish corporates and are affected by all the the issues and questions and requirements of any large corporate. So they do need that support. What I would say, however, is in terms of aircraft finance. So I'm a finance lawyer. So so in my particular area, I actually argue that that is not specialised because I find sometimes junior lawyers think they shouldn't go into aircraft finance because it's such a specialised area. But my argument to that is always you, you actually get a huge range of skills because you learn capital markets, financing, bilateral, syndicated lending, you know, working with corporates around joint ventures and M&A type structures and internal group funding structures as well. So, uh, you know, learning how to mix equity and debt in terms of financing. So it's funny. Yes, there's a specialized layer on top in terms of the asset that you're financing, but actually the skill set as a finance lawyer is quite broad because, and Keen will speak to this, but, uh, you know, a lot of entities in this market really want to have a diversified uh, financing source, uh, financing kind of portfolio in terms of how they finance and their sources of finance. Yeah. And just, just as you mentioned before, that you're all four of you, your entire aviation department is still very, very busy. Kind of in that sense, you know, I've been reading that, you know, Ryanair themselves are only at 10% their normal booking capacity. That's what they normally are in years. The trouble that kind of Air Lingers are going through as well at the minute. Has COVID kind of drastically affected the industry and is it more of like an immediate effect or do you reckon it's kind of an effect that might happen in subsequent years? If you're a business with no revenue, the only way you can address the issue is to manage costs and aircraft ownership costs, whether you lease an aircraft or whether you own it, are a big amount of cash going out the door every month. So what we had immediately were our customers starting in Asia looking for help looking for a help um, on a basis that wasn't particularly surprising initially. We could see, for example, in January, based on our talks with Chinese operators particularly, that there was a problem. But nobody appreciated, or certainly we didn't, in January and as the months progressed, that this would become a global issue. And I think that's the first major difference we've experienced with COVID, not just in aviation, obviously, but just you know, generally speaking, it's a global problem. 
We've had situations like this in the industry in the past. We've had, for example, whether it's pandemics or epidemics, we've had SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome situation in the early 2000s, which in some respects, and I'm not a medical person, have many similarities to what COVID has done. But clearly, COVID is a more aggressive form of it, and it's spread more globally, far more so than SARS. So, so typically what a lot of lessors, and we are a lessor, we lease aircraft to airlines experienced, was airline customers coming in looking for, much like the way you rent your apartment or pay your mortgage, if you don't have an income, you needed relief and you needed deferrals of payments or you needed some structure that allowed you to continue to pay your salaries of some of your staff or pay your vital costs. And we moved very quickly, as did most of the leasing companies in the industry, to try to help. So that then spread through Europe and the United States. Now, clearly, you know, leasing companies, like any business, are not a bottomless pit of money either. So what, what generally was arrived at was arrangements whereby airlines as customers were, were given a number of months, in some respects akin to the mortgage break situation here in Ireland, a number of months time off to make payments to allow them to assess what was happening. And then that they would repay that over the course of six, 12 months, what have you. And, and largely speaking, that's the way it's evolved. Now, the question is the shape of the recovery. People have various ways of describing this, you know, a U, a W, all sorts of letters. And the most interesting one I heard lately was the Nike swoosh, which is probably, without trying to make it flippant, is probably, in our view, more accurate way of describing this. The knock to economies globally has been very material. And I think it's going to take quite a while for passenger numbers, which equals revenue, which equals airline profitability, to recover. And we think it's probably going to take a number of years. Uh, it could take two to three years or longer before we see passenger numbers uh, recovering to the levels that uh, they were where people measure it in 2019. And 2019 was, a, was really an excellent year for the industry. We might touch a little bit later on some of the things that are driving that. But the last comment I'd make really in this section is uh, it's very tough for all businesses out there. It's going to continue to, to, to be so. But one of the things we would observe um, across all of the markets we're dealing with globally, and by the way, we've already seen recovery in China. For example, China has a national holiday coming up on October 1st, which is one of its two biggest national holidays in the calendar. And we know from talking to our airline customers there that bookings are now between 5 and 10% ahead of where they were for the same time in 2019 which is clearly very positive. One of the reasons the bookings are so elevated is, of course, that Chinese people might normally fly abroad for that holiday and are unable to do so. And that's the key issue. We, we think it's less an issue about people not really wanting to travel. We think actually people do want to travel. The problem is that there are inconsistent rules, as we've seen in our headlines every day and on radio conversations about if I go where, you know, how do I quarantine or what do I have to do? Um, and we think that even in unified blocks like the European Union, there's a great degree of difference in terms of what countries are saying when supposedly the rules are all supposed to apply equally to everybody. So we think that there are moves afoot now in the European Union to harmonize the rules in a traffic light system, red, amber, green, in terms of countries and, and what you have to do if you have to go to these countries. But until that happens, uh, I think it's going to be a very staccato, up and down type of recovery. And hopefully from the middle of next year, we'll start to see a more sustainable one. And clearly a vaccine is a part of that.
Yeah, and, and I, I would say I would agree with everything uh, that Keane said there. And in terms of the impact, then from our perspective, we, as I said, thankfully have have remained very busy throughout this. But the nature of our work has has completely changed. Whereas you know, last year we would have been negotiating and and arranging a lot of large ABS. Uh, transactions and, uh, and p- large portfolio financings. Uh, our work immediately changed in March to assisting the Irish companies with dealing with those rent and rent deferrals that, that Keen mentioned. So for those listening, you know, to, to realise that a lot of these aircraft are owned by Irish companies and those Irish companies are the borrowers on large facilities. So when that tap got cut off in terms of revenue and payment up to the Irish company, those directors had corporate governance questions and director duty questions that were very much Irish law questions that we needed to assist them with. It then moved through different type of work where certain entities went through more formal proceedings, be it the city jet examinership or the Nordic Aviation Scheme of Arrangement. Many airlines are now going through proceedings, bankruptcies and, and Chapter 11, which is a, a US bankruptcy proceeding that, that many airlines end up hitting at some point uh, if in, in these type of, of crisis situations. So we were involved on, on a number of, of those more formal kind of bailout and, and restructurings that were going on. And then there was more private companies restructuring themselves and maybe uh, re-gearing their lending packages with lenders and trying to, to, to work something that gave them a little bit more flexibility in terms of how they manage their liquidity. I would say that there is also a view in the market that, you know, this is going to return. People are going to to start flying again and that potentially value is, is going to come into the market. So there are investors who see this as an attractive market at the moment and will invest in it. So there's a, a positivity around that element, but it doesn't take away from the fact, as Keen mentioned, this has been a global shock for the industry, a very difficult one and one where the timing for recovery is very opaque at the moment. But it does mean that people have to think of alternative ways of supporting themselves, of managing their liquidity and of looking out as to where the green shoots of recovery will first uh, start showing. Many people think of this business, if you will, as investing in airlines. Airlines are clearly at the front end of this in terms of the difficulties they're facing in trying to manage their business. But the reality actually of our business is we've really invested in the aircraft and the business of aircraft leasing, typically the operating lease structure anyway, for your listeners, is one where the leasing company provides the aircraft to the airline for a number of years for it to operate. And irrespective of how many tickets it does or does not sell, how many passengers do or do not fly, that airline has an absolute responsibility and obligation to pay the rent every month. So if you will, the difference where risks and rewards commercially and legally work, and they're very, very clear is that the leasing companies are taking a risk effectively on the airline's ability to pay and on the the value of the aircraft itself. All of the other stuff, maintenance, insurance, pilots, crewing, catering, overflight, they're all the airline's responsibility. So what happens ultimately in cases where Marie has described, you know, United States Chapter 11, which is effectively a bankruptcy protection type of arrangement or the examinership processes here, Airlines are very invested in the process of understanding whether the airline is going to survive or not. And clearly everybody's wish is that the customer does survive. But if it doesn't, then the the lessor effectively uh, may be presented with a situation where it has to take back the airplane. But it's it's an asset that has cash generating and revenue generating abilities. So then the leasing company will place that or lease that aircraft with another airline around the world. So this is the big contrast, if you will, between 
leasing a building, for example, leasing an aircraft, if the market in which the building an office block is in trouble, there's not much you can do with that. Whereas if the market in which the aircraft is operating is in difficulty, then actually you can take the airplane back and put it in another market where things are better. And that's probably one of the enduring strengths of this industry um, in terms of financial return and management of risk and reward in contrast to many other industries. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but but to keep the focus on aviation, the one thing I, I would also, the second thing I would also say in terms of a comment Marie made, absolutely right. And um, it does present as an investment opportunity uh, right now. Clearly, there's a lot of stress in the system. There's a lot of uncertainty, but there are some key fundamentals that we think are very, very important, which will still be relevant to the industry. And to that point, actually, we acquired an aircraft um, two weeks ago on behalf of an investor, which is on lease to a major European airline. And we're in the process of acquiring more at the moment, notwithstanding the fact that you know things are pretty different. I wonder, Keen, is it is it a good time to give a little bit of background around why Ireland is in the position it's in? Because I do think it's relevant based, as a follow on to your comments there, because one of the reasons, you know, Ireland has such a prominent place is because the structures through Ireland work for so many countries around the world. So in, in Keen's scenario there, where one airline is in, pro- in trouble and a lessor has to take the aircraft back, they don't have to restructure their whole leasing platform. They can use the platform out of Ireland to put on lease to another uh, jurisdiction. And I just, I thought it might be a, a good thing to actually give the background as, as to that a little bit in terms of Ireland's position around that, because I do think we're so close to it, but others may not see um, mm. why that works. Yeah. So there's probably a little bit of history here as to, you know, the why, and then there's the how Ireland became so relevant to it. So a little bit about the why brief, uh, because there have been whole books written about this, but very simply, until the 1980s, airlines had very long-term visibility, you know, on their business models, not much change. There was a high degree of government control in markets and barriers to entry for competitors were high. Terrific if you're, if you're you know, an incumbent in something like that. And as aircraft were very long-lived assets, you know, they could be operating for 25 or 30 years. It wasn't a big deal for airlines to make a commitment to buy an airplane, knowing that not much was going to change in the world for the next 25 to 30 years. But the major, major change that occurred was in the 1980s in the United States, where capitalist economy decisions were taken effectively to take government out. This was Ronald Reagan's presidency, take government out of many, many industries, and aviation was one. And it led really to the launch of the whole low-cost carrier thing that we see today. And suddenly, airline CFOs were looking at a situation where that long-term visibility was gone. And they weren't able to, you know, in many cases, look forward to the next five years, never mind, you know, the next 20. And they needed to procure aircraft on a basis where uh, they could get them for a shorter term period number one, and that they could be financed cheaper. And that led to the birth of the operating lease industry. And it was launched, of course, by two companies, one of which was Irish, GPA, Guinness Peat Aviation, founded by Tony Ryan, where, where I had the great fortune to work for a number of years. Um, and then that deregulation, before I talk about Ireland, that deregulation spread to Europe. And, and we saw the major, major carriers, again, who had very long-term business models, no real panic or stress in the system, suddenly being faced with the Ryanairs, the EasyJets, the Wizzes, who could offer ticket prices at substantially lower prices and make money. So it became an issue about cost. So airlines dropped their costs. And in fact, if you looked at airlines in the early 1990s, take Aer Lingus, for example. Aer Lingus wasn't just an airline that was flying people from A to B. 
It had hotels in New York. It owned holiday resorts in Spain. It owned a charter airline. It owned catering and other businesses. So what, we, what we've seen over the years is there are other lower cost providers that can provide this service. And airlines like Aer Lingus effectively reduced to being sticking to the knitting, if you will, of what they were good at, which was just simply flying people from A to B on the lowest cost perspective. Now, about Ireland, to Marie's point, which is, I think, hugely important. Ireland, historically, like in many industries, became successful fundamentally because of people. Tony Ryan and many like him, entrepreneur, he was working at Aer Lingus. They had aircraft in the oil crisis of the 1970s that they couldn't use. And Aer Lingus came to him and said, can we do something with these aircraft? They're costing us too much. We can't fly them in the North Atlantic. And he solved the problem basically by leasing it. He subsequently came back to Aer Lingus and asked them, could we make this a business? In other words, why as an airline don't we just buy aircraft that we'll never use ourselves, but we'll lease them to other airlines? And Aer Lingus effectively became a founding shareholder in GPA. But Ireland works extremely well, not just because of people, but because of rules, to the point Marie was making a little bit earlier. And there are two in particular. One is the low corporate tax rate here, which is important, but not the driver for the industry. And in other words, if you make profits, that the taxes at which you, know, you pay uh, for those profits are lower than other countries. But secondly, importantly, something called the double tax treaty network, which is effectively how movements of money between countries are treated from a tax perspective and are recognized in Ireland became the core because it's all very well and good to own an aircraft in Ireland. But if you lease it into Singapore and the Singapore government applies a withholding tax on payments out of Singapore to Ireland, then it's an extra cost that somebody has to bear and it's not particularly appealing. Ireland started these double tax treaties way back in the 50s at a time when all of this international trade, the internet, all this kind of stuff was just nowhere. People haven't realized this, but there were factors put into those double tax treaties and there's a global network of them now. I think, Marie, there's over 35 of them, I think, right now. It was um, 77, yeah. 77, okay. Yeah. Um, 77, and basically those documents were agreed way back at a time, as I said earlier, where all this international trade wasn't as established as it is today. And there are legacy features in them that are particularly favorable to Ireland. Effectively, as if you're an investor in any business, irrespective of whether it's aviation, for every dollar you invest in an asset, if it's a different country, what you're trying to do is to ensure, obviously, commercially, that it's an efficient structure. And that if you're paying taxes, that you can legally minimize the payment of those taxes as much as possible. And Ireland has become a key player in that. There are probably only two or three other countries globally that have the same network of double tax treaties. And I would say none of them have features in them that Ireland has. So it continues to be very relevant and creates a very competitive dynamic here in Ireland for it to continue to do so. And, and I would add, Matthew, uh, to what Keane said there is the people have made it. So the fact that when there is there's a hunger to make Ireland successful and, and succeed in this area. And so there is a real network of advisors and entrepreneurs and others who have really um, worked very hard to ensure that Ireland stays ahead in, in terms of innovation and otherwise around this industry that has, has made a big difference to its role. Uh, because, you know, taxes is very important, 
But actually, if people don't get good advice and also if, if it's very hard to do business here, so that our, our legal and political stability is really important as well. Um, so th- there's a lot of elements that have gone in to, to getting Ireland where we are. And and I think we're very well placed for the future, albeit that the industry is suffering at the moment. If you're putting two and two together with regard to what Keen is saying, actually, uh, the leasing model is something that's going to be relied on even more in the future because airlines are suffering from liquidity. So one of our major pipeline and current um, activities is advising companies on sale and leaseback transactions because the airlines need to get liquidity in there. So the lessors are buying the aircraft from the airlines and leasing the aircraft to the airlines. So actually the leasing dynamic is going to become more important and uh, Ireland would have the largest market share of the leasing element of this industry. So just to round off on that point. That's very interesting. It's interesting interesting that um, you mentioned not just the legal and the tax services, but there are other professional services that have grown out of this. I mean, in our business, we have a technical capability. We have a team that effectively can understand the nuts and bolts and kick the tires of the aircraft because maintaining it, whilst it's the airline's responsibility to maintain it, we have a responsibility to make sure we understand that it's in good condition at all times and that if it needs to come out and be remarketed to another airline, that there's nothing technically wrong that would prevent us from doing it. But there are other aspects too. For example, insurance is a huge issue. Ensure that the airplane and the business is appropriately insured. And there are, like every industry, nuances around the aviation one. And there's a very significant insurance brokerage business here in Ireland for aviation. In fact, Probably not known, it goes back to some of the comments um, that you made in, in, in your intro, Matthew, but Ireland, um, in some respects, is probably the premier aircraft financing, commercial aircraft financing jurisdiction globally in terms of the number of aircraft that are effectively leased out of Ireland to other countries. And there are, for example, deep, deep capital markets like the United States, where the venue to finance aircraft, there are simply more choices and deeper markets available. But Ireland um, is still huge in terms of a global player uh, to the extent that yesterday I was talking to South African, Chinese, German and other aircraft lessors, all of whom live in Ireland. It's, um, it's really interesting that um, cause we're, we've, because Ireland is such, I suppose, a, a global centre for the industry that we are talking a lot about jurisdiction, which kind of from a legal standpoint, it kind of it makes me think that maybe re- like there must be some significant challenges you must face, especially around issues such as taxation, I suppose, arbitration, restructuring, like I suppose anything like that. I mean, when we're talking about multi-jurisdictional law in that regard, are there really major challenges that kind of take place, especially when it comes to, I suppose, you know, enforcing agreements? I would say it's a very collaborative industry, although it's very global. In fact, the the people who come into the aircraft industry, although they may change companies or law firms, they're inclined to stay in the industry and enjoy it. So, in fact, the contacts you make end up being very long term contacts, which is good just in terms of relationships. And I just think this crisis for me will demonstrate the importance of of relationship building uh, even even more, more so because it will really play out in terms of how people manage themselves to come out of this. But you're, you're right, it is. It's really interesting. There is an Irish law piece for certain certain aspects of the structures and certain of the, the documents and very much so in terms of the Irish tax analysis. But you'll find that most of the leases are English or US law governed and most of the finance documents are English or US law governed. Then you will have local law 
elements in terms of regulatory elements for the registration of aircraft. Uh, and just to bear in mind that often it's not as straightforward as you lease the aircraft from Ireland to the end jurisdiction where it's operating. There will be subleases, there will be different structures where you have to move through other countries. So it is frequent for me and probably it would be highly unusual to have any less than anything less than five jurisdictions involved on a deal. For me, I really enjoy that aspect of it. I really enjoy the the multicultural element of it and, and understanding how people approach business. I also head up our China business group. So prior to COVID, I would have been traveling to China regularly. It is really an interesting part of the industry to understand how people approach business and to, and to understand how to best manage that in a transaction where you're dealing with, you know, at least five or six six different jurisdictions. Obviously, if you're doing a portfolio deal, you could have anything up to 30 uh, jurisdictions involved in it. So, you know, there's a project management and an understanding of how to to manage that efficiently for the client. It does throw up lots of of interesting uh, legal perspectives because I can ask for something in my documents, but the local jurisdiction, say, for example, in India or China, will say that doesn't work from our perspective. It needs to say this and and you have to come to a compromise. So without a doubt, it's very interesting in that sense, in the fact that you really get a a whirlwind view and a global view of of how this this works. And there is definitely a a, a multi-jurisdictional aspect to any enforcement proceedings that you need to, to manage because there may be a primary bankruptcy element or a primary repossession jurisdiction, but actually some of the security documents will not be governed by that law. And you have to understand how the recognition of those jurisdictions and their laws uh, will work through the documents. And often, and Keen will probably have more to say about this, uh, often when you're talking about repossession, it's coming down to actually a lot of practical matters and how you manage that practically, um, uh, not underselling the legals, but it has to go hand in hand with a commercial approach. And that's where relationships can be key. Mm. But it's interesting, though, inevitably, there will be adversarial situations, there will be situations where there's simply a disagreement. What has actually developed to the benefit of the industry over a very long period of time now is, is a suite of documents, typically, that govern the relationships, you know, in this case, between a lessor and a lessee, and that are very clear that if and when something goes wrong, you know, how it's addressed. Now, the rules aren't the same everywhere, as, as Marie has been saying, so it might be all very well and good under an English law document to say, this guy hasn't paid me for four months. Under my rights, I'm entitled to terminate the lease and repossess the aircraft. But if the aircraft is being operated in a country in Asia that doesn't necessarily recognize the same rules, you, know, you, you may have a bit of work to do in terms of getting a local court in that country to effectively agree with the UK law court, law, law court judgment, and then you go to the airline and take your airplanes back. But what has developed actually in the industry typically is if unfortunately it gets to the stage where you have to repossess an aircraft. And by the way, I would say that happens relatively rarely because it all comes down to your underwriting and credit criteria initially when you do a trade. That you understand this airline, you understand what problems it's facing and you you stress test it for if things go wrong. But you don't always get it right. So I've been involved in quite a number over the years of repossessions, um, taking airplanes back. And I would say nearly in 90% plus cases, the airlines have recognized that there's been a problem, it can't be fixed, and it's actually to everyone's benefit that they facilitate the recovery of the aircraft, they provide their pilots, they fly our aircraft to a third-party jurisdiction where it can be safely stored, the documents, everything come back with it. And in most cases, that's the way it's been. That speeds the ability of the lessor to redeploy the aircraft and ultimately reduces the claim they would have in law. Uh, for compensation from that carrier for the termination in the first place. 
inevitably you get situations that, you know, for whatever reason, descend into very difficult, very, very adversarial stuff. And we all have war stories about that. But the good thing I would say simply in this, this chat is that they're very rare generally, and they always get solved at some stage or other. And I might just layer on a little bit, given given a little bit of the legal focus on this, um, that there are international conventions and international agreements uh, to help mitigate the fact that you're dealing with such a multi-jurisdictional industry. So there is a convention called the Cape Town Convention, which aims to harmonise the rules around security and protection of these assets. The Cape Town Convention itself is actually a multi-asset convention, but there is uh, different protocols to link it into the specific asset type. So it's the Cape Town Convention and the Aircraft Protocol. And there is, if there's anybody listening to this that's interested in it, there's masses and masses of free public information around this on the international registry.aero. But that convention, you know, signed by over 70, ratified by over 70 countries, and it agrees rules around respecting um, interest in aircraft. It's actually an online registry uh, run from Ireland and another indication of Ireland's place in this industry. But it's run from Ireland by a company called Aviaretto Limited since it was launched. And what that allows is that if you have an interest in an aircraft and you meet the qualifying criteria, and I won't go into too much depth around that, but you can make your registration on this online registry. It's accessible 24-7. It will be part of of our advice to clients and we would take on that role to help register those interests for clients and advise them around the rights around the Cape Town Convention. Uh, But you register that and that's a convention then that anyone can check. So it's not a case that if you have an aircraft in Indonesia, you need to figure out how to access the Indonesian uh, regulatory authority and see what liens or encumbrances are on that. there's, There's a role for that as well, but you know, a lender might wonder, will someone find out my interest and my security over this aircraft? And by using the international registry under the rules of the Cape Town Convention and the aircraft protocol, it gives lenders a lot of security around this and what it has done, actually. And the ultimate aim of of most developments in this industry is to ensure that flying is safe for the public. And what the Cape Town Convention did is help get aircraft renewed so that they could get better financing packages. So developing airlines were given incentives, developing countries were given incentives to sign up to this convention. They got better uh, financing terms and that allowed them to renew their fleet so that people are operating a newer fleet of aircraft. So that's just one element. There's a newer agreement called GATS, which is a general aircraft trading system, which just launched this June. And that is about helping to record ownership of aircraft and minimizing inefficiencies around lease innovations and assignments. So there is always progress in the industry to try and make it more efficient and to try and deal with the exact challenges that you mentioned, that it, it is spread right across the world. Just curiously then, just because we're talking about kind of multi-jurisdictional issues, and I know it's a very rare thing and probably actually hasn't happened, but is there like big potential there that you could face challenges in regarding badly an airline did go into bankruptcy or were forced into bankruptcy and then, you know, you have equipment held a distressed asset. Is there a potential for that ever happening or is it just it just couldn't happen? Uh, no, it does. It does happen. Um, it does happen. As I said earlier, it, it happens rarely. And it's really important, actually, for us as a leasing company that we have the internal resources in terms of people and experience to be able to deal with it. There are cases typically for poorly run businesses or businesses that get into, you know, significant debt or liabilities. Uh, and, and the only way they see themselves exiting, exiting it is to retain the aircraft to try and generate more revenue ultimately 
even though they're not paying their leases and their financings. And look, there, you know, there are no particular secrets. There have been well-publicized cases. Your listeners can, can take a look at the uh, Kingfisher Airlines situation in India, uh, which occurred about eight or nine years ago. Effectively, the airline was inefficient, uneconomic, and losing significant amounts of money. The airline chose to adopt a fairly adversarial approach to returning aircraft when it had not paid its rents and forced lessors to follow the steps that Marie was talking about in terms of having to go to a high court in the UK and having to go to a local court in India to affirm the verdict or the, or the, or the, um, the recovery order. And then, you know, the airline frustrated the process because then you've got to get access to airports and you need security clearance and, you know, all sorts of difficulties were thrown up. But the important thing was that all lessors effectively recovered their aircraft at the end of the day. It took some longer than others. All of them effectively were able to redeploy the aircraft in other markets. And, you know, it effectively proved out the model. But you can have situations, Matthew, where... You know, an airline could literally go bankrupt overnight. And if it's a network carrier with aircraft all over the world, you could get a situation where, for example, a local airport in which, into which an aircraft has flown, we belong to airline ABC, airline ABC goes out of business on Tuesday night and the aircraft is overnighting. In an airport away from its home base, the local airport and fuel company could decide to place a charge or a lien or get a court order to effectively try and restrain the aircraft from leaving uh, until those charges have been paid. They're not particularly worried who pays them as long as they get paid. But as I said, it tends to be rare. It tends to occur more at times of stress like now. But by and large, the industry would not continue to be growing, not continue to be attracting investors and financiers unless they could see that their capital was being deployed efficiently and wasn't overtly at risk of being lost through situations like this. So what you were saying there, Keen, is basically you do come across circumstances where airlines will actually try and trade while insolvent, essentially, which probably exposes them to another huge range of kind of legal issues not directly associated with the aviation sector. But it is quite, I mean, it is quite possible, I suppose, that airlines aren't going anywhere. Um, and I suppose it just comes down to, you know, who the big players are and who's going to, or, you know, management manage it effectively in the, the years to come i mean is it then probably fair to say that does the actual industry in ireland kind of does it rely even heavily on i suppose good kind of political or foreign affairs agreements between different countries i know you were talking about tax treaties earlier on so like i mean if some of those relationships failed in the future would that actually lead to drastic impact on the industry or is it something that you can kind of react and adjust and recover from so let me give my two cents on that and then maybe you, you jump in i think this is fundamentally about people. The industry here has a, a population of people across all of those disciplines, which few other countries have, and, and most of them seem to like living here. That, that surprisingly is a very, very big part of it. There are initiatives afoot in tax, particularly as we've seen with the Apple tax ruling and various other things, which could affect the corporate tax rate here. Uh, but for the moment, I think the government is very focused on you know, listening to the industry, listening to the key issues that the industry sees in terms of continuing to project Ireland as a very important place for aircraft financing going forward, which ultimately, of course, the people of Ireland and the government benefit from through 
you know, salaries, taxes and, and, and other things. I would agree with that. I think the government support is, is really important. You know, a, an example of that was, that, you know, Ireland was one of the first contracting states to the Cape Town Convention. And, and that opened the way for Aviaretto to have such a leading role in terms of driving the international registry forward. So I think I think the government has always been very proactive and very understanding of the prestigious nature of this industry um, and the, glo- the global stage, uh, place on the, the global stage that it gives. Ireland, you know, what it does is countries have a good experience of investing in Ireland, maybe perhaps through the aviation industry, and, and then maybe they may uh, invest in, in other industries. It is it is one that uh, is very much a showcase for Ireland. And I, I would think that uh, the government see that and, and support it. And, and that is important. Because it's such, it is a very, very exciting industry. So what would you kind of say to, I suppose, students or anyone interested in kind of getting into the industry, either from, I suppose, a legal aspect or a finance kind of sector? I mean, there are two things that very much go hand in hand. And I think you could bring either kind of training into side of it. I mean, so how would you go about kind of exploring this kind of opportunity more? Well, I, I might <laughs> j- jump in first there, uh, Matthew, just to say that I think both myself and Keen have emphasised the fact that it is people who have driven this industry in all different aspects of it, but it's people who have driven it. I fell into this industry by accident. Um, I didn't hadn't heard anything about it, didn't know anything about it, and was just put into this area as a as a trainee in in the law firm that I was training in. Very grateful for that, and really enjoyed it, obviously, and 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 made rear out of it. But that's in my mind no way for us to manage future talent of the industry. So I am very focused on ensuring and and things have improved dramatically over the last number of years, very much focused in ensuring that top talent at an undergraduate level, right the way up, understand the opportunities that come in this industry and understand that there's a huge variety in terms of it isn't just, I'm not just speaking from the legal perspective, although, you know, I'm particularly focused on on, on attracting top legal talent into this area, because the only way that we will keep Ireland prominent on this is by continuing to have uh, top talent attracted to it and uh, enthusiastic about it and in invested in it. And I think we've come a long way in terms of the more general profile. You see more newspaper articles, but there's also more formalised training around this, uh, be it at the Law Society or more broader uh, LLMs and and programmes. And for me, you know, what I would say to people is, you know, understand that there are industries out there. And I would say the aviation industry is, is one of them where get to understand the opportunities that are there. It may not be something you've heard about in, in secondary school, but it is not to say that it's something that doesn't throw up some very exciting opportunities from a career perspective. And and I stand over that even in this time of crisis, because it is talent and experience and relationships that will will help drive the recovery out of this at the moment. So foresight seems to be key there in the success, in the maintaining the business, the industry success. Yeah, I think so it is. I mean, look, it's kind of a a, a much used cliche, but the the only constant really is change. And um, for example, when I started out in this industry, there was maybe one or two avenues you could progress to try and get into this. Um, I happened to be extremely fortunate and got a job with one of them. But, but Maurice, spot on, you can't grow a business organically. I learned pretty much most of this you know, on the job training. And that just that's not a sustainable basis to create a global platform in Ireland that's sustainable. So there are, um, on the commercial side, there are undergrad and postgrad programs, um, MBAs in aviation management, both in Limerick and Dublin and, and various other places, which provide really important um, groundwork and foundations for um, analytical, commercial 
and other areas for people to focus on. And then they can join quite a broad spectrum of companies here in Ireland who are growing still. I mean, this if you look at, at some of the very simple stats here, Matthew, the number of aircraft, effectively commercial jet aircraft that we're talking about here, are likely to double in the next 20 years. They're likely to become more efficient, uh, both in terms of emissions and everything. But the conventional sources of financing that exist today simply cannot address that financing need. So all sorts of new structures, new companies, new people, new ideas are needed. And Ireland can be at the forefront of that globally. And just keen, um, just before, I suppose, I just kind of have one last question. Our one is kind of a two-parter now, really kind of based on, I know now your, your clients aren't usually airlines themselves, but is it arguably now that because airlines are pretty much, I mean, guaranteed to recover, airline travel isn't going anywhere, is now, if you have the means now at the time to actually start investing in kind of this sector? And kind of the other side of that that I wanted to ask is, previously we did mention that the one good thing that about like airlines and the equipment that they're using is it's it's a long last, it's a long life asset. I mean, what is like the accountant in me kind of just wants to ask you, what is the depreciation on an asset like over like the same, mm. like the 25 years? So to take the first question, um, is it time to invest? We certainly believe so. There had probably been a very significant volume of new money had come into the industry prior to COVID. And some of the returns had actually reduced. Uh, there's obviously a global wall of liquidity, uh, to, to use that metaphor, for many industries at this point in time. So aviation was not particularly surprising. By the way, I view that positively because of this financing challenge coming at us. I think availability of finance is key. If you, you know, if you're not the most efficient finance provider, then you, you kind of need to, you know, cut your cloth accordingly and change. So it is a good time to invest. You do need the tools, though. You do need the tools in terms of understanding the risk reward because this one is different. COVID is very different, and I think that, particularly as it relates to airlines, we're going to see some, unfortunately, some big casualties. We're already seeing some major historic brands in, for example, South America going through very difficult restructurings at this point in time. So some airlines, unfortunately, won't come out of this, but the business is an enduring one and new airlines will come and replace them. So you're correct. We don't invest in airlines. We invest in aircraft. We, we generate revenue from the payments that airlines make to us. But we think, for example, many of the aircraft that we'll be buying in the future are going to be operated that, by airlines that don't exist today. So that's it's a good time to invest. In terms of the accounting around uh, the assets, um, these are Physically wasting assets, as I said, the economic life is roughly around 20, 25 years, depending on the type. Although if you were flying in the United States up until last year, you could have been flying substantially older aircraft. They tend to have a propensity to fly aircraft into their much later life in, in the Americas than they would, for example, in Asia, where, where there's a propensity and a desire to have newer, latest generation equipment. There are two typical types of, of depreciation. And in fact, there's a whole you know, accountancy conversation we could have around it, which I won't bore your listeners today. I'll keep it on the high level. I mean, typically, um, because they were physically wasting assets, they go to the scrapyard after 25 years. So a, a historical and much used depreciation policy was to depreciate them on a linear basis over, let's say, 25 years from 100% down to a scrap value of 15%. So you'd be annually depreciating it, you know, three, three and a half percent per year or something, which is a charge to your profit and loss account. Now, other another policy that, some lessors are more and more lessors are adopting is is, appraise, is to appraise value. So there are people in the industry who make money out of projecting the future values of these aircraft. And lessors may choose a depreciation policy where they would buy at 100 today. And if a valuer says it's worth 90 in six years time, then, you know, they'll go for that. And then they may change their policy for the second lease if the aircraft comes out after six or eight years and goes somewhere else. But by and large, they follow the practice that 
a physically wasting asset should decline in value every year. Very interesting. So we're just talking about kind of, you know, I suppose, nurturing the, the next generation of talent. I mean, is Airborne Capital open to accepting inter- interns from MBA students or undergrads or kind of anything along that line? I know ALG now, they obviously with their traineeships, I don't know now if they offer a seat in the aviation department, but I know traditionally now you would get a, a rotating seat in the different departments. Yeah, the short answer is uh, we, we are open to um, internships. We've taken people in periodically. We're a small company. Uh, we're about 25 people globally. I think working in smaller companies actually has always been my preference because you tend to see more of what's going on. Larger companies necessarily need to be more siloed, even though they're much bigger and broader in their activity. You tend, generally t- tend not to see a huge, you, you don't see across everything as you would, for, for example, in ours. That's not an advertorial for Airborne. It's just probably a reflection of, of the way I've seen it. We don't have a formal induction program for interns. But, you know, coming back to this um, training process, I'll just give you one example of one of my colleagues. And to preserve their modesty, I'll kind of keep it more generic, but non-Irish national had completed an undergrad in his own country, saw aviation as something that would be of interest to him. So had no connection whatsoever with Ireland, did a bit of research and found one of the uh, Dublin universities ran an MBA program, which seemed to be interesting to him. He sent them his grades. They accepted him. He did the MBA process there. And we have the great fortune about his decision to come to Ireland that we've hired him as an analyst in our company. You know, for, we, we would never have come across skills like his, but through, you know, clearly curiosity, interest, courage for him to come to somewhere like Ireland where he had no, no, no family connections, no relations, nothing. And, and now um, is a core part of our team. And I think there'll be no reason why, you know, anybody studying in Ireland can't do the same thing. Uh, absolutely. I, I would say, as I said, we, we have, you know, the, the largest aviation finance group. So, in fact, uh, I am always uh, on the lookout for trainees. We normally have about four at any one time, five if I can get my hands on them. And the, the role of the trainee within our group is really, really important because we're, it's very transactional group, very transactional practice area. And what you have is rather than uh, just one or two transactions, you know, larger transactions going on. You usually have uh, a couple of large transactions going on, but also a multitude of smaller transactions. So a trainee really gets gets to grips with the type of deals we do. And, and they see, you know, unlike what might happen on a litigation seat, they see deals go from start to finish really quickly. Challenges of a, of a traineeship in our area is the volume of work and, and how quick pace moves. So uh, usually uh, people do enjoy it. it. It is great. I love seeing the interest and, and as people have become a little bit more aware of the aviation industry and, and the opportunities that come from it, uh, there's there's definitely more um, interest in terms of trying to do a, a traineeship in in the area and for people to test out whether whether it suits their skill set. So I'm very encouraging of that. I'm very keen to make sure that we have a pipeline of talent coming through both for A&L Goodbody, but generally across the industry, because that is just absolutely so important to us. And it is, I would reiterate what Keane said, we are kind of like the people may go to the US West Coast for for certain industries. People come from all around the world to Ireland for aircraft. Uh, that's uh, uh, you know that's where the skill set is. That's where the CEOs, CFOs, the key people are. It is worth building your career here. And you know we've people from different countries, and on our team, uh, people are attracted to, to to move to Ireland. And a lot of the the lessors here have hired from, from all around the world because you know th- there's an element of we're only starting to to replenish the talent pool, and we need to keep doing that. So I would encourage anyone to to look into it if if it sounds like something that they're interested in. 
Yeah, it sounds amazing. I really appreciate that. But um, thank you so much, Keen, and Marie, thank you, obviously, so much as well. It was really fantastic.